0: Chapter Thirty, Part One of the Fall River Tragedy by Edwin H. Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty, Twelfth Day of the Trial, Part One. On Monday morning, ex-governor George D. Robinson made his plea for the prisoner, which was as follows: "May it please your honours, Mister Foreman and gentlemen." one of the most dastardly and diabolical of crimes that was ever committed in massachusetts was perpetrated here in august eighteen ninety two in the city of fall river the enormity of it startled everybody and set all into diligent inquiry as to the perpetrator of such terrible acts our society is so constituted gentlemen that every man feels that the right must be done and the wrong punished and the wicked doer brought to his account as promptly as due procedure of law will permit. Here, then, was a crime with all its horrors, and well may those who stood first to look at the victims have felt sickened and distressed at heart, and human nature be broken so that the experiences of a lifetime will never bring other such pictures. Who could have done such an act, says everybody? In the quiet of home, in the broad light of an August day, upon a street of a populous city, with houses within a stone's throw, nay, almost within touch, who could have done it? Inspection of the victims disclosed that Mrs. Borden had been slain by the use of some sharp and terrible instrument, inflicting upon her head eighteen blows, thirteen of them crushing through the skull, and below, lying upon the sofa, was mr borden's head and mutilated body with eleven strokes upon the head four of them crushing the skull the terrors of those scenes no language can portray the horrors of that moment we can all fail to describe and so we are charged at once at the outset to find somebody that is equal to that enormity whose heart is blackened with depravity whose whole life is a tissue of crime whose past is a prophecy of that present. A maniac or fiend, we say, not a man in his senses, and who has heart right, but one of those abnormal productions that deity creates or suffers, a lunatic or a devil. So do we measure the degree of character, or want of it, that could possibly prompt a human being to such acts. They were well-directed blows. They were not the result of blundering. They were aimed steadily and constantly for a purpose, each one finding its place where it was aimed, and none going amiss on the one side or the other. Surely we are prompted to say at the outset that the perpetrator of that act knew how to handle the instrument, was experienced in its control, had directed it before, or others like it, and it was not the sudden untrained doing of somebody who had been unfamiliar with such implements now suspicion began to fall here and there everybody about there was called to account so far as could be that is proper that is right and necessary investigation proceeds the police intervene they form their theories they proceed to act they concern this one and that one they follow out this and that clue they are human only when once a theory possesses our minds you know how tenaciously it holds the place and how slow the mind is to find lodgment in something else now no decent man complains of investigation no one says there ought not to have been anything done everything ought to have been done nay more we say everything was not done and that the proper pursuit was not taken now proceed with this matter a little and let us see how it stands a person is charged with a crime like this defendant suspicions surround her investigations in regard to her proceed and inevitably naturally if the matter is deemed of consequence she is brought before the court the district court in that instance to have an examination preliminary into the probabilities of the crime on her part then if she having nothing to do with it having no control of it having no opportunity to accept to be heard be bound and compelled to answer to this court what then then the grand jury of the county is called together and sits by itself under the direction of the district attorney to investigate and see whether it ought to come before a jury like yourselves now remember that at that time and when this indictment of last december was framed this defendant had no voice it was purely one-sided they said we make this charge serious as it is against a defendant we will ask her to come to the bristol county courthouse and meet that charge and if we cannot prove it against her in the ordinary way she shall go free she is not guilty now that is one-sided up to that point practically and so you are to draw no inference whatever and i know you will not you will draw no inference whatever as against this defendant until you have heard the evidence in this case in this court-room at this time you have nothing to do with what was done in fall river any more than you have with what is now proceeding in australia the finding of judge blaisdell of the district court in fall river worthy man as he may be is of no sort of consequence here and has no sort of influence or obligation over you. We would not be safe if in these great crises our lives hung upon the decision of a single man in a prejudiced and excited community. No, we walk away from Fall River, we come down to the broad seashore, we sniff the breezes of the sea, and here is freedom, here is right, here are you gentlemen i say then at the outset as you begin to contemplate this crime and its possible perpetration by the defendant you must conclude at the outset that such acts as those are morally and physically impossible for this young woman defendant to foully murder her stepmother and then go straightway and slay her own father is a wreck of human morals it is a contradiction of her physical capacity and her character now before i pass let me say that this defendant complains of no prosecution on the part of the district attorney of this district he has only one duty and that is as a gentleman and lawyer to conduct this investigation so that the truth as to her may be elicited with his well-earned reputation and his high standing at the bar he would have no need to search for laurels for his fame and he is one of the last men who would demean himself so as even to think of it he stands above the miserable assertions that unthinking people will make and he walks into this courtroom only as a representative of the commonwealth of massachusetts that is yours and mine and his and says gentlemen all i have to show you is the case we have against this woman and if the case i have brought to me by the fall river police is not sufficient or you have any doubt about it he will say if he speaks what his heart prompts him to utter he will say for god's sake say so like men and bristol county will be the happier and the securer afterward he is not here for blood neither is he helped to such dishonourable work if it were attempted by our excellent friend the district attorney from the great county of essex one of our best and most reliable lawyers so you will see no small play you will see no mean tactics on the part of the commonwealth here but only a presentation not overstrained in one jot or one tittle a presentation of what has been proven here and only that so merciful is our provision of the law that a defendant shall have a decent chance that she becomes convinced how faithfully that is carried out when she recalls the numerous kindnesses and considerations on the part of the sheriff of this county he has done with her not as a convicted criminal but as a young woman of his county entitled to her rights guaranteed to her in the constitution and laws of our state and so she comes into this court presided over by our best of the judiciary clean able honourable gentlemen who sit vigilantly upon the bench to guard against any possible wrong who want the commonwealth's case tried but the defendant to pass without abuse or wrong and taking the law into your hands as they will give it to you you have only to deal with the facts i said the case was brought to the district attorney by the fall river police i have not time to go into sarcasm or denunciation of those gentlemen they are like a great many bodies of police that you find in all communities policemen are human made out of men and nothing else, and the blue coat and the brass buttons only cover the kind of a man that is inside, and you do not get the greatest ability in the world inside a policeman's coat. You may perhaps get what you want, and what is sufficient, but you must only call upon him for such services as he can render. Now when a police officer undertakes to investigate a crime, he is possessed and saturated with the thoughts and experiences He has with bad people. He is drifting and turning in the way of finding a criminal, magnifying this, minimizing that, throwing himself on this side in order to catch somebody, standing before a community that demands the detection and punishment of the criminal, blamed if he does not get somebody into the lock-up before morning. What are the police doing, says the newspaper? And the newspapers, you know, are not always right mostly saying to him look here mr marshall these murders were committed yesterday and we haven't a murderer in the lock-up get somebody in now they are sensitive to all those expressions naturally policemen feeling the responsibility of their office must go there and do just such work as that in that way that can only be expected of them and when they come upon the witness stand they reveal their weakness do they not They knock their own heads together. They make themselves, as a body of men, ridiculous, insisting that a defendant shall know everything that was done on a particular time, shall account for every moment of that time, shall tell it three or four times alike, shall never waver or quiver, shall have tears, not have tears, shall make no mistakes. But they, stripped of their blue clothes and in their citizen's garb, show themselves to be only men here and liable to human infirmities and errors now i dismiss them without any unpleasant reflection i will talk about them a little later on but i have nothing to say now any more than this that you must not ask of them more than they ought to give you must not be surprised if they fail even of the standard that they set up for everybody else so i say to you as a distinguished advocate in a similar cause expressed himself to the jury this defendant comes before you perfectly satisfied that the jury is the most refreshing prospect in the eye of accused innocence ever met in human tribunal who are you twelve men and how came you here selected out of one hundred and fifty men that were drawn from the body of this county passing the gauntlet of criticism and objections put upon you by the court or the attorneys you are sworn here in this cause who are you men bristol county men men with hearts and men with heads with souls and men with rights you come here in obedience to the laws that we prescribe for the orderly administration of our courts you come here because in answer to the demand you feel that you must render this great service unpleasant and trying as it may be exhaustive as are its labours. You come here because you are loyal men to the state, nay, more. You are out of families. You come from firesides. You are members of households. You have wives and daughters and sisters, and you have had mothers. You recognise the bond that unites and the flash that plays throughout the households. Now bring your hearts and your homes and your intellects here and let us talk to you as men not as unmeaning things the clerk swore you to do your duty and perhaps you did not hear that oath so closely as i did but i heard him say you shall well and truly try and true deliverance make between the commonwealth and the defendant whom you shall have in charge in no case except a capital case is the oath offered in that way whom you shall have in charge and lizzie andrew borden from the days when we opened this trial until this hour has been in your charge gentlemen that is the oath you took and not alone with you mr foreman or any one of you but with each and all of you you have her in charge now has come the time when not alone her lawyers are to speak for her not alone the judges are to watch for protection Not alone is the learned attorney of the Commonwealth to ask no more than he ought to have. But the twelve men who sit here to try this question take the woman in this charge, and the Commonwealth says, We entrust her to you. Now that is your duty. She is not a horse. She is not a house. She is not a parcel of land. She is not the property of anybody. She is a free, intelligent, thinking, innocent woman in your charge i noticed one day as we were proceeding with this trial a little scene that struck me forcibly i was one morning as the court was about to open when you were coming into your seats and standing there and the judges were passing to the bench to take their positions and the defendant was asked to pass her round from the place where she now sits in order that she might come in so as to be near her counsel and right at that moment of transition she stood here waiting between the court and the jury and waited in her quietness and calmness until it was time for her properly to come forward it flashed through my mind in a minute there she stands protected watched over kept in charge by the judges of this court and by the jury who have her in charge if the little sparrow does not fall unnoticed to the ground indeed in god's great providence this woman has not been alone in this court room but ever shielded by his providence from above and by the sympathy and watchful care of those who have her to look after you are trying a capital case a case that involves a human life a verdict in which against her calls for the imposition of but one penalty and that is that she shall walk to her death you are then to say i will critically consider this question and i will make no mistake because if i do no power on earth or in heaven can right the wrong you come here without prejudice or bias i take it you said you did i believed you i believe you now you said that though you might have read about this transaction you might have formed an opinion might have expressed an opinion as i think some of you with perfect honesty said because in this intelligent age people do think and read and talk and it is all right they should. But when a man is big enough to walk up and say in answer to the questions the Chief Justice put to him, I have read and thought and judged about it, and I stand up here now and before my God and my people say I would find a true verdict on the evidence under the law. That is a man we all want to see in the jury-box. I would rather see him there than to have one of these miserable pieces of putty on whom the last man who stuck his finger into him can make an impression you will need at the outset gentlemen to dismiss from your minds entirely everything that the press ever said about the case anything that your neighbours have ever said about it anything that you have ever heard about it except in this courtroom at this time every rumour every idle tale or every true tale that has been told you must banish from your minds absolutely and for ever why gentlemen if we were to try the case on the street we need not have spent these days and you would have been enjoying your entire freedom like the rest of us you would not have been prisoners yourselves but we are not trying the case in this way and so certainly i believe does the court guard it that you are shut off from reading the newspapers from having communications from indulging in conversation about the case during the progress of the trial what use is taking these precautions if you are all coming in with your heads brim full of what you have heard before and will not give that up now every man of you is man enough to say when you go to the jury room to deliberate on this thing and somebody presents an idea well that is not in this case you have no right to consider any such thing you have no more right to do it than you have to take a knife and cut this woman's throat i mean under your duties as prescribed by the law then you come here patiently day after day and you will sit here again and again until this case is concluded and then proceed with your deliberation with that calmness and fidelity that is guaranteed in the expression of your countenance when the life of man is in debate No time can be too long, no care too great. Hear all, weigh all with caution. Now, gentlemen, it is not your business to unravel the mystery. You are not here to find out the solution of that problem. You are not here to find out the murderer. You are not here to pursue anything else. You are simply and solely here to say, Is this woman defendant guilty? That is all. Another real criminal shall never be found. Better a million times that than you find a guilty verdict against this woman upon insufficient evidence and against your human experience and contrary to the law so that an unhealthy appetite may be satisfied and blood be given that belongs to the owner of it beyond anybody's taking. Not who is it? Not how could it have been done? Did she do it? That is all reflect if you have not yet been able to bring that evidence with a certainty and a reasonable construction to a conclusion so that you as decent gentlemen can go to your homes and sit down and say we have done our whole duty we have brought in a verdict against her although perhaps within a week we wish we had not when we think of it nor must you think for a moment that this defendant is set to the business of finding out who did it If she cannot find out and tell you who perpetrated these acts, somebody says, go hang her. She is not a detective, and the Commonwealth has put her in a place for the last ten months, so she could not be very vigilant or active if she had all the ability in the world. She has been in jail in this county. She has been under control of the police from the very time, from Thursday, August the 4th, as you know from all these facts and do not expect her to do things that are impossible pray do not load upon her the responsibility of setting her to go where she cannot go or do what she cannot do or else hold her to account for it with the severest penalty known in the law the commonwealth does not want any victim either in the old days they had sacrifices of lambs and goats and even human beings were offered in expiation and in sacrifice but we have got over all that we do not even burn witches now in massachusetts the commonwealth wants no victim and so gentlemen i have attempted in this way to array before you what i consider in my own manner the duties that lie upon you and the limitations under which you act and what is the call upon you why simply to be true to yourselves to thine own self be true and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man now there always goes with any person the presumption of innocence of crime i stand here at this moment addressing you and i am clad all over with that presumption of innocence of every crime so is each of you that is your bulwark that is born with you nay rather is given to you out of the great consent of all the people and you say guilty why i think not i am innocent and the court will tell you that that presumption started with this prisoner on august the fourth and had been with her by night and by day when you had her in charge that presumption of innocence has been in her favour and it never leaves her until by the verdict of a jury that presumption is overcome and she is declared guilty it is true that people who have heretofore been innocent commit crime and so the law says we will not demand the unreasonable and impossible thing but you the defendant shall have that presumption go with you until it is entirely overturned and it says that you are of a criminal heart and criminal act Now bear that in mind, if it comes to any question in the discussion of the evidence of a doubtful consideration, then that presumption is all the time in the scale. The beam of the scale does not stand level to start with. We say the scales of justice hang even, but there is always with the defendant the presumption of innocence that tips the scale in her favour, and the Commonwealth must begin and load in on the other side facts until they shall overcome the presumption nay more and overbalance the facts that the defendant shall produce i shall not attempt to talk to you at length about the different kinds of evidence direct evidence and circumstantial evidence the learned court will explain those different features to you and the lines have been drawn so clearly in the many cases that have been tried that it is wholly unnecessary for me to take your time and your patience you know or will know when his honor has uttered to you the charge in the best way what we mean by direct evidence and what we mean by circumstantial evidence direct evidence testimony from actual observation and actual knowledge is what we very frequently rely upon but that is not always certain i am bound to say to you not always sure because the man who gives the direct evidence may be a miserable liar and you would not believe him under oath unless you kept your hand on him now that is direct evidence and then sometimes facts are found out by circumstances you reason from hearing a noise or from seeing a person in a given place you see a man going somewhere and you say he has gone in there for that particular business there whether it is banking or insurance or grocery well you may be right or you may be wrong you have been given different circumstances to try to draw out a reasonable conclusion but i am not going to enlarge upon that because i deem it unnecessary and because i have other things in my mind which are more important you do not start in here to try to convict anybody other people may but you do not if you are asked to convict upon any evidence whether that is direct or circumstantial you will of course bring it to your clearest perception and strict honesty and look to see whether it fits in whether it is all right and whether it has not run against this corner and also knocked itself to pieces whether the circumstances are all in and whether something has not been left out whether the chain is not broken with which it is sought to bind the defendant look it over search it through and through as i will in the argument as i proceed and discover whether there is any claim that is insufficiently proved then too the court will tell you that by whichever method you proceed as to this defendant the proof must come up in your mind as a moral certainty not a mathematical certainty but a moral certainty it must be beyond a reasonable doubt now you saw in criminal cases before very likely you have had a man before you on trial who had stolen five dollars or something of that kind and the same rule applies and you are told that you must not convict him unless you are satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not different in this case. In the one case you are perhaps dealing with a man who will be subjected to a penalty of a fine or a brief imprisonment at the most. Here the same rule applies, and you are dealing with a woman whose life is at stake and nothing else. Now you will see that while the rule of law is the same in the one case as in the other, the magnitude of a mistake about it is not to be lightly considered so that when you are asked to find these essential facts beyond a reasonable doubt of a curmudgeon who sits off in a corner and says i won't talk with anybody i am an ugly fellow i will make myself disagreeable in this jury-room that is not it that is not a reasonable doubt no matter which side he is on he is not fit for service in the jury-room it is the doubt of such men as i take you to be with your home influences with your church belongings with your business associations with your social relations and all that binds you up to each of us it is the reasonable doubt of a reasonable man confronted with the greatest crisis he has ever met in the world yes the greatest crisis because though i doubt not some of you have worn the blue and faced the cannon shot though you may have heard and felt the thunders of war and you may have seen blood flow in streams yet that is one thing this to sit here and to have in charge this young woman and to say upon your oaths you are satisfied that she is guilty or not guilty is a duty to which very likely none of you have ever been called and which probably you will never be asked to perform again you will go to your graves thinking of how you performed this task and it ought not to be that you can have any compunctions that you made a mistake which nobody could retrieve then again under the laws of this state the defendant in a criminal case is permitted to testify upon the stand as she desires to but if she does not desire to she can refrain from testifying and then the statute says specifically and directly no inference shall be drawn against her from the fact that she has not testified and so the learned district attorney in his closing argument Will not by the slightest suggestion or insinuation insult this court and jury by intimating that the defendant ought to have testified. That law was born under two considerations. Formerly, the defendant could not testify. Later, it seemed to be wise to give a defendant an opportunity to testify. But it says at once, although he does not come to the stand, you shall not take it against him in any way. And again, too as if in the charity of human nature our lawgivers felt that it was too great a strain, oftentimes, to put upon a defendant to place him in such a position that he must either go upon the stand or have that argument laid against him, that he ought to have done it. The law which I have cited to you, not in its exact term, but in its essential features and expressions, was framed in the way I have stated, and I dismiss that again the court will tell you in emphatic and clear language and it will look you in the eye and touching your sense of justice say to you gentlemen you must not consider that and you will not as you go to yonder room under your oath depart from that because if you do so what is the use of having scales for justice to hold or courts for the apparent administration of it either now i said you must leave out rumours reports statements which you have heard before the trial commenced that is true i repeated but more you must leave out of your minds absolutely every single thing that the learned gentleman who opened this case mr moody said that he was going to prove unless he has actually proven it now i would not like to say that about him in private affairs i would not be pleased to intimate to you that he would say anything that he was not going to do because he is the soul of honour but he speaks for the commonwealth that is all and the commonwealth tells him you must not say anything but what you are going to do and you must tell them that and only that and i shall expect the learned district attorney to withdraw the things that brother moody said he was going to prove because he has not proved them the courtroom ought not to echo still with the utterances of the gentleman who opened this case because they tend to create a prejudice against the defendant. Now let us tell you about that, so that you will understand it. Mr. Moody said that the government was going to claim and prove that this defendant was preparing a dangerous weapon on August 3rd, the day before the murder. You heard him say that. I did. He said it. They have not proved it, have they? Was there a thing about it in evidence? You have heard some discussion that we have had at the bar because in order that there should be no prejudice you have been asked to stop many of those things which have been offered in good faith have not been proved because the court has said they are not proper to be proved in this case they have nothing to do with it they will only mislead the jury and the jury shall not hear them in this case whenever another case arises if these things are pertinent and proper they shall be heard but not now no the commonwealth came with the idea of putting these things before you i say with good intention but the court says no though your intention is good it is not proper and we will not complicate this thing it will create a bias against the prisoner which may divert the course of justice and that shall not be introduced here it has no right here though you mean to be right now there is no proof at all gentlemen about any dangerous weapon having been prepared on the third of august and to make it more specific mr moody said in his opening that they would prove that this young woman went out to buy a poison on august the third you have not heard any such evidence it is not proved the court did not allow it to be proved and it is not in the case now you will not go to the jury room with the thought that if it had been allowed you would have considered that it was proven but it is not allowed no such evidence came before you and i shall expect the district attorney man fashion to get up and say so and i think you will and i shall be disappointed in him if he does not he will tell you that upon that subject and that the case is not touched at all then he said that they were going to show you that the defendant had contradicted herself under oath about these occurrences well there is another question which went to the court and the court said that is not proper in this case you cannot show that and so there is nothing of the kind now you are not going to sit back there and say well i rather think mr knowlton and mr moody would not have offered it unless there is something behind it that is not the way to try cases that is not the way you hold this defendant in charge you might just as well have got your verdict before you started and said guilty because she is here You might as well say, we don't want to hear any evidence. You do not want to say that you do not care whether you hang her right or wrong. Give us somebody. Now the court sits here to guard you and all of us against any such mistake. That will not do. The court says, here gentlemen, decide this case on the evidence given right here from the witness stand and on nothing else. When you stand here in the box ready to answer and somebody says to you, oh you don't mind what they put in about particular evidence whether competent or incompetent you say no i want my rights i am here under the protection of the law and i call upon these twelve men decent men under their oaths to stand by me and see that i am not wronged so you will leave those things out gentlemen no prussic acid no preparation of a weapon by this woman no statement made by her under oath in this trial or anywhere that you know anything about or have a right to consider i do not care what you have read now we shall agree in the consideration of this case very largely upon many things my position in this case in speaking for the defendant is not to misrepresent or distort facts but to take the proofs as they are put them against each other and find out what is right this defendant wants nothing but justice and she desires to have it in the proper administration of the law things that are not in dispute i hope i shall not contest i hope i shall array before you the facts altogether in an intelligent and clear way and then ask you to give me your judgment on them by and by and i just as sincerely trust that i will not even by a single letter step over the line of the proof or deal unjustly even with the commonwealth "'that is really so dear to us all. "'Now let us see if we cannot get at these things "'in a fair way without prejudice. "'Mr. Andrew J. Borden left his house "'and went down street that morning, "'Thursday, August the 4th, about 9.30 o'clock, "'so that he arrived at the savings bank "'upon the evidence, about 9.30. "'He went into several places along the street, "'not material now to consider, "'walked back along South Main Street toward his house.' stopped at a store of his that was being repaired talked with short sleeves and mr martha and after picking up an old block which he wrapped up in paper and took home he started to go to his house you recollect something was said that it was not material to consider in this connection but he walked along up toward his house arriving there the defendant thinks about ten forty five it did not vary probably more than two or possibly three minutes from that time it must have been as much as that because you recollect how mr mother put it his looking of the clock and the time that mr borden lingered at the store went upstairs came down went out into the middle of the street went back and talked with mother and short sleeves a minute or two and then went on it was ten forty twenty minutes of eleven as he came up to the store now he probably consumed two or three or four minutes in doing those things that they have spoken of and so you may well perhaps infer that he reached his house about ten forty five we have learned of several things that he did that he came into the house sat down went upstairs to his room laid down his little package and so on was occupied with a few things that would consume a short space of time so that we can say that he was murdered somewhere within a given fifteen or twenty minutes of time which may be between five minutes of eleven and ten minutes past eleven i presume that the commonwealth will not differ with me about this at any rate if there is a clearer statement of it to be made the defendant has no objection if it lies within the proofs that is the way i propose to argue to take that as a fact mrs borden had died earlier on the testimony of the physicians inspecting the character of the wounds the condition of the blood the state of the stomachs and the intestines, they put it from an hour to an hour and a half earlier than he died. That is probably correct. At any rate, no issue is made about that, and so, if I may be permitted to state it, she would seem to have died between 9.45 o'clock and 10.15, somewhere within that half hour, taking all the evidence into account. That answers the demands of the physicians, and seems to me, if I may be permitted to say it, to accord to the facts. Now you have those tragedies within that short space of time, in that place, and it is for us to see whether the defendant is connected with them, whether the defendant alone, or the defendant with any confederate, if there is any proof about it, did the deed. I am at a loss to know where there is any evidence about any accomplice or anybody else connected with it at all, and so it is only my inquiry to find out if there is any truth as to this defendant of course i need only suggest to you that until there is some sort of evidence that connects somebody with it it is not well to assume that she must have had somebody because you cannot think of anything else that is not the way to try this case now it will be my endeavour in discussion of these questions to be very guarded about giving my opinion of the evidence i have no right to put in whatever personal weight i may have in my construction of the evidence that is bad practice and i should expect if i get over the line for the learned court to call me to order because i trust i know my place i have no right to tell you that i believe so-and-so about this case i may believe all i want to but my duty is to keep it inside of me that is all and so the district attorney will do the same carrying this great weight and the strength of his convictions every way into this case he is not so to demean himself as to tell you that he believes so and so you do not want our beliefs we want yours and your judgment now there sits the defendant in yonder city were the crimes those crimes were the foulest and the darkest kind she comes here under this presumption of innocence it must be overcome absolutely, and you must bind her up to the acts before you can say she is guilty. What is the cord that binds her to those terrible criminal acts? Let us see where it is to be found. It is not in the charge that is read in the indictment. It is not in the procedure of the court. But it must be in that chain of circumstances, or in that line of direct proof, that shall show you that she is tied up to this thing, that she is the one, and that it is not reasonable that anybody else did it or could have done it and there is no reasonable way of accounting for the things that are proved except that she did it that is the kind of bond that you must frame in order to hold her or to permit you even to think of holding her if a person commits murder like this and we know it we have no occasion to inquire for what reason he did it if he did it then it does not make any difference whether he had any motive or not he might have done it for pure deviltry without a motive he may have done it in insanity and then the law comes in in another way to intervene on his behalf but if it is proved proved i say not guessed but proved that he did it it is not of the slightest importance whether he had a motive or not if he did it that is all there is about it now why is the commonwealth bound in this case to attempt to show a motive for doing merely this gentlemen because they say here are the crimes there are the crimes there sits the defendant you see her over there now in order to hold her responsible for the crimes we have got to bind her up to the crimes we have no direct evidence that puts her there we have some circumstances that look as if she might get there And so in order to bring her to it, we must show a reason why she would do it. What moved her to do it, that is the motive. That is to say, the motive in this case is only to explain the evidence. You get my idea, I think. It is only to tell you how you can explain her acts or her words. If you can explain them in a reasonable and honourable way, she is entitled to that. But if they cannot explain except that you find a criminal thought running through them, then that motive operates against her, not to make her commit the crime, but to show you that what is said about it is a reasonable construction that she was led to do it that is, if I understand the case properly, and I state it just as I believe it to be, the court will correct me if I'm wrong, and I believe I state it about as the Commonwealth attorneys would state it intentionally I do, and so that the motive is only to be inquired into to help out about the circumstances and i think i can explain it to you and i am guarding myself against saying anything i ought not to suppose the crime were committed in another place and a man was suspected of it and he proved that he were in the state of georgia at the time at the very instant and everybody knew it well now you could not bind him for doing the crime anyway no matter if he stood down there and swore profanely that if he could only get home he would have killed that man that would not be anything because the circumstances do not come up to it they are not connected so you do not want his motive to explain his acts he hasn't any acts to explain now the government says that miss lizzie borden has some acts to explain therefore they will find out whether there is anything in her motives that will put a colour on it i think you see that and they are inseparable from the conditions now i say that the argument will be only this that you are to look at the motive to see what effect you shall give to the evidence. It will not do to say that no adequate motive is shown, and none is necessary. That is true when the crime is proved, that is true when you have the facts, but that is not true when you are trying to show the motive in order to explain the facts. Now there is absolutely, and I think the Commonwealth will say it, no direct evidence against Miss Borden, the defendant. You know what I mean nobody saw or heard anything or experienced anything that connects her with the tragedies no weapon whatever and no knowledge of the use of one as to her has been shown you know if you had found her with some weapon of that kind in her control or in her room or with her belongings that would be direct evidence but there is nothing of that kind it is not claimed it is not shown that she ever used an implement of the character that must have produced these murders it is not shown that she ever touched one or knew of one or bought one or had one in fact the evidence is that she did not know where the ordinary things in the house of that kind were and the murders did not tell any tales on her either there was no blood on her any blood speaks out although it is voiceless it speaks out against the criminal not a spot on her from her hair to her feet on her dress or person anywhere think of it think of it for an instant yes there was one drop of blood on the white skirt as big as the head of the smallest pin says professor wood less than a sixteenth of an inch in diameter and that is every particle of blood that was found upon her clothing and that was not where you expect it to be not in the front of the skirt that must if she had it on and had done these foul deeds had first come in contact but around back down toward the bottom near the placket as i believe the women call it out of the way i do not know but the government are going to say that she turned her skirt round hind side before she began in order to get at it in a practical way i don't know what they are going to say yet i shall have occasion to speak of that by and by but professor wood does not claim now i don't know as there is a fall river policeman from top down that claims now that that little fly speck as it were of blood tells any tale here i forbear to allude to what is proved in this case miss borden's illness monthly illness at that time and to tell you or remind you that professor wood said he would not undertake to say that the blood was not menstrual blood you know the facts i need not give them in detail you know enough in your own households you know all about it you are men and human you have your feelings about it i am not going to drag them up but you must not lose sight of these things but then there was some talk about a roll of burned paper in the stove where mr philip harrington i believe was the officer he took off the cover and saw what he said looked like embers of a rolled-up piece of paper burned that is all and there were some sort of dark insinuations here floating around that didn't clothe themselves in words but there was something in the manner that meanly intimated that dr bowen was doing something about it dr bowen i suppose they don't make any allegation that he committed these murders or helped to cover up or assisted in doing anything about it when the evidence is heard it seems that mr philip harrington says that dr bowen was throwing in some pieces of an old letter that had nothing to do with these transactions something about his own family matters of no account and mr harrington i think i am right in the name of the officer when they were thrown in saw some little piece of paper rolled up paper about an inch in diameter that had been rolled up and was lying there the embers of it and there was a small low fire well we thought the handle was in there we thought that was the plan and the government possessed itself with the idea that the handle was rolled up by the defendant in a piece of paper and put down in there to burn and it had all burned up except the envelope of paper did you ever see such a funny fire in the world what a funny fire that was a hard stick inside a newspaper and the hardwood stick would go out beyond recall and the newspaper that lives forever would stay there what a funny idea What a theory that is! And we wrestled with that proposition here on the part of the defence through weary nights, troubled about it until Fleet and Mulally got here together and then we were relieved from every doubt for the handle was in it and it was out of it. Fleet did not see it. Mulally did see it. Fleet did not take it out of the box and Mulally saw him do it and it is in the box now and they run over to Fall River to get it or they wanted to and can't get it into our house and explain about it so we rather think that the handle is still flying in the air a poor orphan handle without a hatchet flying around somewhere for heaven's sake get the one hundred and twenty five policemen of fall river and chase it till they can drive it in somewhere and hitch it up to its family belongings then too upon the best testimony of the experts and probably in your own common sense whoever committed that murder of mrs borden stood astride her body she was a large stout fleshy woman weighing two hundred pounds Conceive the situation you looked at the place you saw the little gap between the bureau and the bed stated to be about thirty to thirty-four inches and you are to conceive of the murderer standing over the body in this way here she lies there and the murderer standing over her and literally chopping her head to pieces I shall have more to say about that by and by but i call it to your attention and they all agreed that mr borden was butchered by somebody who stood at the head of the sofa and between that and the parlour door you know how it is placed and we make no question about it that looks reasonable we will say and so we take the things as they are now what reason is there for saying that this defendant is guilty the commonwealth asks you to come up here and hear all this evidence and point out whether you think she is guilty or not if you do not think she is why you say not guilty and the commonwealth is satisfied and the district attorney goes away having done his whole duty satisfied to let it alone he does not find any fault about it he is relieved of it it is a great relief to him to get rid of the case he does not enjoy it he says come up and hear all we have got against her and let the jury say she is not guilty and that will stop this matter or if you come up and hear it and you say she is guilty then that relieves me about it i put this responsibility on you and the court says i put this woman into your charge now you have got it all now what right have they to say anything about it well i want to run it through which i have done with some care and tell you why they claimed that she did it end of chapter 30 part 1